Welcome, friends, to God's Church on the Move. We're thrilled to have you join us. It's a new year, January 2019, and Ron and Karis are in the studio. They've just gotten back from Ethiopia, Egypt, Israel, all spiritual hotspots where God is interacting with believers and transforming lives in really the most incredible ways. It's an honor to be here today. I trust you are as eager as I am to hear from Ron, the founder and president of Empower, and Karis, vice president and director of international operations. So, Ron and Karis, you've been home not too long from your trip overseas. Where do you want to begin and what do you want to tell us? I think what we're going to do is start Joy Today in Egypt and just give you a little update of what Empower is involved with there and what the conditions are like. We, um, we were able to meet with workers from all over the Middle East that came in to tell us their story and to tell us basically God's story of, of their endeavors and um, his work in that area. Um, the two areas we're going to bring out, though, are uh, regarding what God is doing through the internet, throughout the Middle East, basically on social media. And second of all, I want to tell people about what's going on on the Nile River with widows in villages. So let's start with, first of all, the social media. And Karis, I'm going to get you to um, break into this one because <laughs> I'm not the best at social media. In fact, uh, I, I would say I'm totally illiterate. Somehow doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I can turn on my computer, that's where it is. But, but can you just sort of share with the folks what's going on in that regard? Well, what they had explained to us is that uh, all throughout the Middle East, they reach out and um, share the gospel with people, younger people in general, um, on social media. And it's a way that they can ask questions, they can counsel people, they can basically um, befriend them and um, work with them, and it's all done online. So there's uh, a safety involved with that in, in the Middle Eastern environment, um, but there's also the freedom for them to ask anything. And there's counselors on hand to talk to people um, through the different social media um uh, most of it, which I found funny, was most of it, um, they use Facebook over there, which I, from North America's standpoint, seemed a little dated. But evidently over there, uh, it's very common for younger people to use that. So the, the one thing that got me as well was the fact that they were overworked. The counselors were mm -hmm. overworked by the number of people wanting information. They they were from all over the Gulf states. They were from North Africa, various uh, parts of that Middle East section. And they were writing in with questions about who is this Jesus? Um, what about uh, this, that, the other thing, all the theological parts. And uh, I still remember the one sort of um, thing that showed me the tension in the Middle East right now. Um, the one testimony was, please don't tell my mom and dad mm -hmm. that I'm asking these questions. I think it was a 17-year-old yep. boy. Yeah. And um, it was a matter of um, if mom and dad found out that I was asking these questions or thinking that uh, there's another way to find God outside of Islam, mm -hmm. they would be very, very upset with me. And therefore... Mm -hmm. The young people are trying to find answers right mm -hmm. now. And uh, it gives them the safety and the freedom to be able to ask the questions uh, without the threat of other people finding out. They also uh, said that they actually get a lot of people um, coming on and asking questions from Europe, too. 
Hmm. So really, yeah. I, I missed that in the. Yeah. I'm glad you <laughs> yeah. were there. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's good. And and that would be because of a lot of the people, a lot of Muslim um, Arabic speaking people from the Middle East have gone into Europe. That's right, as refugees. Yeah. The refugees. Well, that was the one area that really impressed me, and I think that we're going to be doing more and more with that in the future from Empower's point of view, because not only um, do they need these counselors, um, these counselors work very, very hard, and they can also provide scripture in digital form. If they can't mail a hard copy to them, they can mm-hmm. send it out in digital form. And there are Bible studies that we provide, the That's scripture right. portions, the study Bibles of all sorts. So there's lots of tools at our disposal to be able to give. And they were also explaining that uh, a few of them will get together online in um, like chat room type settings um, and talk back and forth. So it's kind of like their own small Bible study groups or um, groups where they can ask questions back and forth to each other. So it's it's their version of um, a mini church, shall That's we what say? I was say. Uh, but thinking outside the box yeah. for the yeah. for the environment that they're in. For many of those people in that situation, that is their church mm-hmm. because they have no other options. They can't attend one. So what do you do? You go online. Yeah. And that's that is fantastic. Second of all, we're going to go and talk about the widows um, along the Nile River, and this is south of Cairo, and along the river um, where most of the population is in. Egypt today lives within five or 10 miles of either side of the river because that's the only place that something grows. Outside of that, it's sand. Mm. And therefore, these villages have popped up all along there over thousands of years. And we've chosen to work um, there and, and primarily with the churches in some of these communities in the villages that need scripture, that need Bible study materials, as well as those that are suffering right now, and that would be the widows and therefore the orphans um, in these situations. Here's, here's what's happened. In many of these villages right now, they've got industries whereby they take this white, chalky, calcium, I would suppose, um, stone that's in the hillsides, and they carve it out with power tools to make building blocks, like concrete blocks. And these are used to put up houses. So they're very, very white, very powdery. And when they cut them out, this dust comes up by the cutting tools, like chainsaws. And it it gets into the lungs of the workers. Well, primarily, these operations are owned by those who are Muslims in background. But the ones who work in the pits, in the hillsides with the tools and are breathing this dust that comes up are young Christian men, and that's the only jobs that they can get. So they go in there, and they don't have in masks or anything of that nature to protect themselves, and many of them die, and uh, I think they called it when I was there, concrete lungs, mm-hmm. whereby this, this powder gets into the lungs, and they just, after a few years of this, just die. Well, now there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe into the thousands, of widows that have come out of this situation and little kids all over the place that are suffering. So uh, when I went in there, um, going down the river, we stopped at this one village and walked into this widow's house. And I'll never forget this. They were putting a roof on. Some of the guys were putting a roof on for us on her house. There were walls up for years, dirt floor, extremely poor, no plumbing or anything like that. And she and two little children 
probably about three and four years of age. They were sitting on the dirt floor and she had a few clothes, um, the, uh, the, the ones that the children were wearing and she was wearing there, but also a few extra clothes that were over a, like a half wall, but very, very few. And she also had a Bible and the Bible was in a plastic bag and she stored it in the hole in a wall there. And she had one cooking pot, small cooking pot. And she told us that in the, in the evening, when she got home from work, of whatever she did, she would go out and find greens and some sort of nutrition or buy something at the market with a little bit of money, make up sort of a, a stewish sort of soup for her and the two kids to have. That was their food for the day. And they would use the outside fields as their washroom. There was no roof. They were susceptible to the sunlight, what rain would come down, dust storms, everything like that. She then showed me this, that what she would do at, at nighttime is she would take this little shovel and on the dirt floor, she would turn over the dirt in an area that was about the size of a bed. And she would turn that over so the children would have a softer bed at night. There was no blankets. There was nothing like that. And they would lay on this and that was their bed. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, this is a Christian woman who follows Jesus. Um, not much future uh, in, the, in the normal. But we are working with that church in that community who is reaching out to these widows. We're helping with the, um, with the roofs. We're helping with various things to get her up in her own business and get going. We're helping with the children, taking in and they're providing Christian education right now for the kids. All these things are revolving around this problem. But what this is doing, this is why it's so impressive for me, is that this is a huge testimony to all the other people who are not Christians living in the community. And this is the bond of Christ all coming together. They're not just helping the widows, but the orphans, the education system, the church, the pastors, everybody is being blessed by all these resources from outside. But it is all being, it is all being for strengthening that church from within. It's not like Empower's putting a, a, a badge on the door saying, we helped here. Nobody knows that, that we're doing these things in that village. This is all coming organically through the pastor and the church and everything like that and the workers that go in there, all Egyptian in background. And therefore, that is what we, we do. We try to strengthen the church and to fix problems that are popping up because of uh, social situations, political situations, economics, and things like that. And therefore, we're not a humanitarian organization, Joy, but in some of these areas, we can extend the gospel. We can reach out to other people by helping in such things as this. Right, and, and nothing more important than a roof on a house. I'm I'm wondering the temperature in this area. Do they have extreme temperatures? Cooking hot, be, like really? I mean baking. Yeah. Um, being there in the in the summertime, um, well, well over 110 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which would be 40, 45 degrees uh, centigrade. And um, in the in the wintertime, it's cold. It's not snow, but it gets really cold at night, in the desert especially. And therefore, it goes to extremes. Is it common not to have a roof in this area? Was she poor, just one family? Oh, no, no. No, it's seven. very uncommon. They might get walls up. Mm -hmm. And then they will work on their house over the years. But many times a young couple would start with the walls right. and um, would get around to the roof. Well, if the husband dies, yeah, what do you do? 
There's nothing. Right. There's nobody to take care. She has to go and try and find a little bit of money for food by doing something. Right. So she has no way of getting ahead. And that's why we have to help in that situation. It's important to win people to Christ, disciple them. And these ladies that are all being taken care of in these villages all belong to discipleship groups. All are being given Christian training. All are being helped in uh, to find employment and to get kicked off in that. Uh, their kids are being cared for. It's a full package. Right. And does the um, the desire to follow the Lord come out of the aid that they're given, or is it all mixed in together? It's all mixed in. Right. It's it, it's 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 both a little bit of money to help them mm-hmm. immediately, and then it's to stand on their own two feet after a while. It's to grow in Jesus to their walk with God. It's to raise their children in a Christian home. It's it's all things considered, it's building the body of Christ in that community on an individual basis and on a group basis. In a full organic type of a way totally. where you're doing a full body. Totally. You had mentioned that no one really knows Empower is doing this stuff. Is that an important feature? Do you, do you go in not wanting people to know Empower is helping? We do not. In fact, we would like to hide. Right. Learned this years ago. We want to lose our identity in the Church of Jesus Christ around the world. Nobody needs to know who's helping who. Right. It's just a matter that Jesus knows. And Jesus loves his church and the bride of Christ. And therefore, we just go in anonymously. We will help out. We find good people, nationals on the ground, who will be able to handle this sort of thing. And therefore, it's done by the indigenous national church. And they are the ones that are standing out in the front lines. We're just way in the back. Right. All right. So that was Egypt and the uh, widows yeah. on the Nile. Yeah. Fantastic. Where else are we going? We're going to go to Ethiopia. Most of our time today is going to be talking about the situation in Ethiopia. And we're going to go a little bit further than we've done before explaining um, what's what's happening now, especially in that part of Ethiopia that is Muslim in background. The For people that don't know this, and I've said this before, but there are about 100 million people in Ethiopia today. 50 million of those identify themselves as being Orthodox. And this comes out of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts when the gospel was taken down south. And about 50 million of the hundred are, um, are, are following that. And then you've got about 20 million who are evangelicals and consider themselves to be of, of, of that belief. And uh, they're called actually penties. And it's not that they're all Pentecostal, it's the fact that um, the Pente goes for a Pentecost, and that's when they identified the work of the Holy Spirit coming, and they just called them Pentes. And so uh, that's that. But there are also about 30 million of the Muslims that are in the country, and those are the ones that are really accepting the Lord right now. And they're walking away from Islam, and they're coming to the Lord. And um, that's why we want to talk a little bit today about how this is happening and give some stories that Karis and I um, were told about the situation. You see, there's something growing up right now whereby it's not the traditional Western-style church within the country. Muslims are coming out and forming congregations that are strong in the word of God. They are, their doctrine is, is good, it's sound, it's biblical, it's, uh, shall I say, evangelical. They believe in the inerrancy of the word of God. They have put away um, the Quran. They've put away um, their Islamic beliefs, but they have not put away their form of dress, maybe the foods that they eat, 
um, how they would gather together in a church gathering. For instance, <laughs> they don't have pulpits. Um, they don't have a lot of, um, of uh, seats. In fact, they don't have seats when they gather together. They sit on the floor. Um, in, in Islamic mosques, uh, men are taught in there, women are somewhere else, but in the churches that are being created there right now, it's the men and women together. So they've, they've changed a few things, but much of it, if you were to walk in, you think, boy, this looks sort of like Muslim in background, but it's not. The form of it is very much in their, their culture, their style, but their internal belief is right according to the word of God. It's biblical. It's sound. There's no, there's no falsehoods or what we call it um, syncretism or mixture going on. They haven't mixed Islam with Christianity and come up with some sort of mixture. No, this is a pure Christian church. But when you look at it, it's got their culture all over it, what they've grown up in. So that means their clothes, their food, their way of talking, their way of studying. But these churches meet regularly. In fact, uh, just going by my notes here, um, they were talking about there, was, there were two sheiks there, former sheiks. And what is a sheik? A sheikh is a teacher, leader okay. of the mosque. Like uh, kind of high up with We're going to call him an elevated pastor. Okay. okay. And there were two of these fellas, and they were very, very well educated, and they were talking about what was going on, and they had started eight of this sort of church in the villages around them, eight villages, and the Sunday before we got there, they just baptized 60 people. And these churches are multiplying very, very quickly. When we asked them, they said, yeah, we baptize about uh, 60 people a week right now. And they're just growing by that, that, that number. There were two ladies there who were going into a nearby village and keep going to these villages. And this is the ladies reaching the ladies because it's difficult for the men to. Go ahead, yeah, Chris. In their culture, um, women aren't supposed to be talking to men alone. And so it's really important that they have these female church planters out there because they can go out and talk to the other women, um, witness to them, share the gospel with them, and uh, the women feel open to talk to them because of them being a female. Well, the one thing as well, we were talking about these baptisms, and we found out that there's a lot of deliverance during the water baptisms. That means a lot of these people were into the occult. They were into um, voodoo, witchcraft, and all that sort of things, as well as being into Islam. And it was a mixture of that. And when these people are, are going through water baptism, they have a manifestation of the demonic powers that were in them before. And they have to be dealt with right then because baptism is a defining moment um, more than it is recognized in the West as mm -hmm. a whole, around the world in our operations, we're noticing that whether this is Islam or whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, bat water baptism is that moment of public declaration that a person is following Jesus. Well, all those powers of darkness that were in and on these people fight back at that moment because that's the moment of declaring ownership. And they wanted to own these people. Well, now when Jesus says, no, no, I'm the owner of this life, that means that there's a bit of a struggle. They deal with it right there at that time. The people are baptized. They don't run into those problems after that, we've been really? told. So even though they've made the decision to follow Christ at the moment of baptism, there's still... There's, there's still remnants. Yeah. Because remember that their walk with God is a journey. And usually their commitment to Jesus 
And the time that they're water baptism, there's not much time between those. Right. It's sort of like today I accept Jesus, tomorrow I'm baptized. Right. So there's, there's, this, <laughs> there's this period of time. They're, they're making this all, this one big step very, very quickly. And that's why these things come out. Um, we can get into the theology of this, but probably everybody's got to come to grips with it themselves. I'm just telling you <laughs> right. what is happening there, okay? Um, the other thing that we're uh, impressed with is this, that when they go into these various uh, teachers and evangelists and et cetera, go into these villages, they received um, threats, they received persecution from the powers that be, the religious powers that be in these villages. And the missionaries just take this as normal now when they go in. It's not like they make a big thing out of it. They're not massively surprised. <laughs> they go in, they know, well, we're probably going to get stoned today and we're probably going to maybe even get stabbed and a couple of us are going to die. We realize that, but we have to take the gospel to this village. So we asked them, we said, well, wh what's the reason why there's such a desperation to go and do it right now? And the one brother said, he says, because they're dying without Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he says, they could die tomorrow and stand before God and would have not have accepted Christ. And he says it's sort of like a race to get there before they die. Another brother um, wanted 300,000 Bibles or New Testaments immediately for the Christians that had just accepted the Lord, the believers that just came to the Lord out of Islam. And it was twice, wasn't it, Karis, yep, it that he twice. said this? And he says, we've got to have these Bibles because they're going to die without having a Bible. They need it now. This is urgent. Well, there's an urgency not only of getting them a Bible, but it's an urgency of taking the message to that next village because they might die. And this is, we've got to get the urgency back in the gospel over here. Yeah, And that's sure. what we're seeing over there and why so many people are willing to undergo the persecution and the tortures and the stabbings mm -hmm. and all these things is because people are dying without Christ. So that is the background now for all of the stories that we're going to tell. Um, Karis, I'm going to let you talk about the, the, the young lady who was 22 years of age, uh, accepting the Lord and remember sleeping for a week. I'm oh, gonna, I want yes. you to tell that story. Um, so we, we were in this small mud church in um, a small village out in the middle of nowhere. And there were probably about, oh, I can't even remember, maybe about 15 people that came in just to meet with us. And there was this girl... And the whole time we're sitting there, um, she just kind of glowed. There was something about her that you were just drawn to her. And she she got up and she told us that um, before she became a Christian, she was scared all the time. She lived in constant fear. And she said that she couldn't sleep. The problem was she was so scared. She was scared to sleep. She was just constantly living in fear. And she said the biggest change for her once she accepted the Lord was that she had such peace that for the first week she was able to sleep deeply. And she said she was so excited that she was able to sleep for a week because she had such peace in the Lord. This means a lot to me because I looked at this little girl, 22 years of age, and here she was coming out with a smile on her face. She was getting peace, there was joy, all that. Because the question we asked that set this up was, what was the greatest change in your life since becoming a Christian? All right? And over here, a lot of times, we don't ask that. 
People will accept the Lord. You and, might be afraid to ask that. Well, that, maybe it is right. it, because there isn't that much of a change. But when I'm overseas, we will ask that question, what's the difference now? What do you find is different from your old religion now that you know Jesus? And this was this young lady who put it so succinctly. And for both Karis and myself, it was a matter of, look at this. This is a prize example of what God will do because these people are scared. They're scared to die. They know they don't have the answer. Um, we, we were talking to this one leader this one day, and he was like the, I'll use this term, he's like the Ravi Zacharias of um, teachers for the Muslims. In other words, he used to be a um, Muslim sheikh, a leader in the mosque, and through a miracle of macaroni um, <laughs> exploding, shall we say, and growth on the table, and just coming out of the pot and not stopping. And it drew him to think that there is a God out there. I've got to find this God. And then he went and talked to a missionary, he accepted Christ. He was well-learned in the things of Islam. And he now is so deep in God and the understanding of the scriptures and everything like that. So we were sitting there with him and he was telling us about this immense growth of the church and all these people coming to the Lord. And uh, then he says, uh, you realize that there is no specific savior in Islam. In other words, Muhammad, and he was telling us this, he says, Muhammad died looking for the Savior or a Savior. And he says, that's the way it is that they don't have one specific. And then he says, when you share with them about Jesus, who came the first time and fulfilled everything that was necessary to prove that he was a Savior, and now he's coming a second time in fulfillment of the Scriptures, Again, proving that he was the Savior, the one and only. He says that is so important to those people from Islamic background who were out there searching for some Savior to, to save them. Well, he says when you explain that Jesus already did this, wow, that gives them the peace and the joy. He said that uh, they found what Muhammad was looking for. Yes, and, and that's their intro yeah, a lot exactly. of time in witnessing. Yeah, so they don't come at them saying, you're wrong. They're explaining, no, we found the final, we found the piece of the puzzle that was missing. Exactly. And then they go on to explain everything else. And he also said, we don't come in a confrontational way to try to get a fight going and to prove that we're right and they're wrong. He says, we just take with what they believe and then we explain a better explanation or where this is leading to or or the deficiencies in what they're thinking that Jesus is the fulfillment of what you're looking for. And therefore, it's in a non-confrontational way. That is a lesson we have to learn over here because it's, it's almost like we're looking for a fight all the time when we're talking and we're trying to witness to people. He also said that in the Quran, there are hints to Jesus and Jesus being the Savior. So, um, and it pointing to the Bible. We're going to move on because there's a couple of stories here that, that were really interesting. Um, we were talking about uh, the, um, the villages that we would be going into. And the people would go into these villages and they would be talking about going from one to another, to another, to another, to another. And they would give these women and the evangelists and everything like that, all the tools that they need. Well, there was this one young lady who 
um, and Karis, you can probably help me with this one as well. You're great with details. But she she came out and she was um, um, uh, accepted the Lord. But when she went home, she had a problem and she had to stay out at night mm. outside. Do you remember that yep, story? I sure okay, do. fill in the details. So she had accepted the Lord and was going out with the church planter, uh, out sharing the gospel with people. And one night she came home. And her parents had found out what was going on. And her parents said, no, you can't come in this house. And it was in an area that had a lot of hyenas. Um, it, it's known, I guess, in this area that there are so many hyenas out. And so um, she spent the night outside of the house. And her her parents were worried that the hyenas were going to get her. And I'm sure she was too. But she prayed that God would protect her. And in the morning, her mom ran to the door and uh, went to look outside, and she was there. She had, she said she had peace that God was going to protect her all night. And so since then, her parents are fine with her doing whatever they, because they know that God protected her. She referred to it as being like Daniel in the lion's den. That's right. And that, that God would protect her no matter what was going on. Well, this was only a young lady who would go out and do these things. Well, what she talked about as well is the fact that she would go out to these villages. She didn't know a ton about the gospel. In other words, not all the fine details, all the questions she couldn't answer that people would throw them. But she knew enough. She would get a group together. She'd call her a little gang or something like that. <laughs> and she would take them to the church planter. The church planter and the pastor would answer all the other questions, lead them to Christ. And then she says, okay, I'll go get some more. And she mm-hmm. would go out to another village, get through her um, enthusiasm, through her knowledge that she had more, and she would draw them in. And she said, this is what she would do. She would go get them. The church planter would win them to the Christ, and she would just keep going village after village after village, and that was what her job was. And that was um, that was Ethiopia. And yes. do do you hear? There's so many miracles in Ethiopia, and so many amazing stories in Ethiopia, and those are just a few. I imagine going to Ethiopia and seeing this is um, incredible for for both of you. It is. It, it it's a powerful thing. Cares. You can probably uh, speak to this better, but to see to see people from all walks of backgrounds of both being young women, older women, young men, older men, children, every age group, every social situation, every background, whether it's within Islam or witch doctors or anything like that, God is breaking through to these people in all their situations. And that is the most impressive thing for me. Yeah, I think it was interesting because uh, sitting around in this room with all these church planters um, and evangelists, it wasn't just one age group, one gender. There were young men, there were young women, there were older men, there were older women. And so it really it kind of showed you that God's not just using the young people or he's not just using the older people. He's using everybody. Yeah. Everybody has the opportunity and needs to get – they really see the urgency. And they're excited. They are. They, they, you can see it on their faces that, wow, we finally found the answer mm-hmm. and that it's now our responsibility to go. So they're owning their problem and they're owning their an- the answer of God. Mm-hmm. Um, last story, and then we're going to move on to Israel. Um, we're going to talk about a man that I'd heard about before. I didn't know who he was, who burnt down a church. <laughs> now, this fellow was really, talking about excitement, this fellow was sitting in front of us and he was, um, 
energetic. He was detailed. He was just on fire. And they started this way. He says, I grew up in the mosque. In other <laughs> words, it was like I didn't have a house. I grew up right in the mosque. And from six years of age onward, he was studying. He knew the Quran so well, he said, that he corrected people for wrong pronunciation, for wrong spelling, um, everything. He knew all of the other books as well, the other Muslim books. And also he had a letter from the highest levels of Islam within Ethiopia that he could go anywhere and teach the Quran. When he was 15 years of age, he took to task the leaders of the mosque in his hometown because they had allowed a Christian missionary to come in and start a church in their village, and he was angry. This reminded me of Saul, mm -hmm. the apostle Paul, but before that, he was Saul, the persecutor of the church, and it said that he had incredible zeal. I could see that mm -hmm. in this guy, that he had a zeal, but it was misplaced in the wrong belief system. And so what he wanted to do this fellow, Ted, he says, I wanted to go and kill this leader. I wanted to kill this pastor in my home village. And he says, I was looking for an opportunity to do it because he says, I knew that if I could kill this pastor, I would have a direct pathway to heaven because God would be so happy with me. And therefore, he says, I was looking for an opportunity. Well, an opp something else came up before this. And he says, one night he went and he was going to this village and um, he went in there and to the church, and he saw that it was big, that there were mattresses all over the place. They were waiting to have some sort of conference, and all the people would sleep on the ground, shall we say. And he says, I went and I burned the whole place down. And he took a torch, and he went from house to house, village to or, or, um, a church uh, to church parts of it, and he would burn the whole thing down, and he says, what all went up in smoke. I remember hmm. hearing this story years ago of this church that had burnt down. And he said, he said, that was me. And then he said, I hid in the bushes when all the people from the church gathered around. And he says, I was listening to them because he says, I wanted to hear their plans as to how they were going to get me. And he says, in Islam, we would have put a curse on a person that did this sort of thing. He says, they didn't do that. He says, they stood around, held hands, and prayed for my salvation. They prayed that God would take care of the man that did this and that they would draw him. And he says, and they forgave me. In their prayers, they said, we forgive him and God forgive him. Remember how Jesus said, um, uh, um, uh, you know, forgive them. And in all these situations, even when they, he was crucified, forgive them, forgive them, forgive mm -hmm. them. Well, it's what he did here. And he says, man, I could even go out right now and kill the pastor and they'd forgive me for that as well. So he says, I knew that there was something different about these Christians. He then started to have dreams. And at night, he would see these visions and dreams. But part of it was always hearing the word forgiveness, forgiveness. And he kept reliving the prayer meeting when he heard that all these Christians were forgiving him for everything. He couldn't get away from it. And this went on finally. It haunted him so much. He went and he, he talked to a teacher, another pastor, an evangelist, and he says, I can't get this out of my mind. He explained the gospel to him. This melted him. And out of that, he led nine sheiks to the Lord, nine pastors, in his village. Nine of the fellows that were like his counterparts, he led to Christ. And then he says, but I've also gone to another village and they broke two of my ribs. And so he says, I've undergone some persecution as well. 
And he says he, he wants all these people that have been in thick darkness for so long to finally come to the light. And then at the end, we said, so how's it going now? And he says, good. He says, um, I have now led 117 sheiks to the Lord over the last few years that I've been a believer. 117 leaders. He is an evangelist on a mission. And he would burn down a church, but now he's building the church. Wow. Totally different. And he's leading the leaders to the Lord, and those leaders themselves lead many other people. Oh, exactly. So it's a, it's a big— It's going very, very quickly. Wow, big harvest. We could tell you more stories. <laughs> but, well, we're gonna more, Israel, but we're right? going to move to Israel, But we're going to move to Israel for time, if nothing else. Um, I want to talk about Israel because when we went there, it was um, very exciting to see, as usual, what God is doing in the country of Israel as a whole. And obviously, you've got two groups that live there. One, our Jewish background, primarily Hebrew-speaking, but a lot of Russian-speaking that have come into the country now, as well as you've got Arab-speaking believers up in the northern part of the country primarily. And so we went in there and um, started to meet with various leaders, um, people who were in outreach in the country. And um, so we have good friends up in the northern region at one of the major churches there. And they had shared with us the fact that in 1989, there were 30 Messianic congregations in the country of Israel. Today, there are about 230, if not more, congregations, and that they're growing all the time. And many of these congregations are um, um, people from French backgrounds, where they've been forced out of France because of the persecution of Jewish people. They've come into Israel and they've come to the Lord um, saying that Jesus is the Messiah, Yeshua is the Messiah, and forming congregations, French-speaking. You've got Ethiopian, Eritrean, uh, Russian, as I said. Um, We've got pictures uh, that we saw of all these Holocaust survivors who were Russian-speaking, who would come out of the camps in the Second World War, very elderly now, and they had made it up into Israel, and they were coming to know Yeshua as the Messiah. And they were, we saw pictures of them sitting in white robes on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to be baptized. And these people are turning into the best evangelists within the Russian-speaking community that you've ever seen, and these congregations are popping up everywhere. Today, they estimate about 30,000 Jewish believers attending Messianic congregations, as well as others, thousands of others, that don't come to these congregations because of politics or family or they're within Orthodox Judaism and they're not allowed out, but they still believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they're just not able to attend and identify openly. And so there's a great growth right now in the body of Christ within Israel as a whole as well as you've got up in the north, the Arab congregations that are growing as well. Um, One brother we work with there, up in the Arab congregations by the Sea of Galilee, he was talking about the fact that they have these church services, and uh, he was saying about that the church is full of believers. And he says, we leave the windows open at the side, and they've put up a tent on the side of the church so that Muslims who want to hear the message but are not allowed to come into the church, will come and they will listen under the tent through the windows to the preaching of the gospel. And we just uh, were able to take in 
20 foot container, was yeah, it here? A it 20 was. foot container of Bibles, etc., to help them in this area. And we have to do more now because they ran out of Bibles. In fact, um, when the last box was distributed of Bibles, and when they did the distribution, apparently there was a tug of war between two pastors over the last one. A friendly one. Yeah, a Christian tug of war. Okay. (laughs) A friendly Christian tug of war over the last box. And they just, they they were hoping that they could have it because the desperation is there. People want to hear, not just believers who didn't have a Bible, but we're talking about people from a Muslim background living in Israel who want to hear about the claims of Christ. And they know there's a difference between believers and unbelievers, and they want to know why. So that's going on right now. Karis, do you have anything you want to add as far as what you saw when you went in there this time? I just, um, when we were meeting with the Arab congregations, uh, the urgency that, once again, we talked about in Ethiopia, the urgency, um, they were talking about how there's such an opportunity right now. People are searching. And so um, it's not just... Um, localized to one country. There's, God's on the move all over the place. We are going to do something um, in 2019, the year 2019, which is um, different. And what we're going to be doing is fulfilling a, um, a burden that God laid upon my heart and has been confirmed when we've gone over to Israel as well. And what we're doing, we're calling it Operation Equip Israel. And what we mean by that is this, that Israel right now is in a point of transition. And this transition is is that the body of Christ has grown up to such an extent that God is raising indigenous um, Israelis who are taking ownership of the churches, shall we say, their own situation. They are becoming the Bible teachers. They are the driving force. Up to now, it's been a lot of foreign folks Um, um, we'll call them missionaries, maybe Western missionaries, but people coming in from all over the world who have started these congregations, who have been in the leadership of the congregations. But now a transition is happening, and now it's more of the nationals that are taking leadership, and they need help at this present time. And this is what they need help with. They need Bibles. They need scriptural materials. They need all sorts of of tools to help them to grow deep in the gospel, knowledge of the word, and become teachers and pastors and leaders. And therefore, we are working with the Bible Society right now, great folks over there in Jerusalem. And we are doing right now, the starting this off, we're going to be doing the largest shipment, procurement, distribution, uh, placement of Bibles and Bible-related material in Israel's history. We're going to be doing it this year. And we're not talking about a few thousand. We're talking about a few hundred thousand, if not more. And these are going to be Bibles. These are going to be children's materials. These are going to be outreach materials. Everything that is necessary from New Testaments to Old Testaments to parallel Bibles, French Hebrew Bibles, Russian Hebrew Bibles, everything that they could ever want. There are some 200 or 250 young men that are in pastoral training right now in Israel, and they don't have enough money to be able to buy all the tools that are necessary, like Bible atlases or good commentaries or encyclopedias of the Bible, all those books that really explain 
the in-depth nature of the gospel and the history and all that sort of thing, and they don't have that money. And there are congregations that are extremely poor, and they don't have money to buy outreach materials. Many of them don't have full Bibles. Um, the people are poor. And people say, well, I thought Israel was a rich country. No, the cost of living there is very, very high. So much so that when you graduate from high school, um, immediately you do your two years home service in the military. After that, we were explained that they come out of that and they usually get married. Then they're going to start their children. And at the same time, there's not enough housing. And therefore, many times you have to live with your parents or in-laws or some sort of situation like that. I've heard of regularly a dad having a job, mom having a job, and that one of the two of them have another part-time job just to make ends meet. And therefore, to try to support their church gathering, their congregation, or their um, outreach and their pastor and all this sort of thing, they don't have the cash for it. But we have the ability, and God has laid it on Empower Ministries right now to go in and do this with the French congregations and the Ethiopian and the Eritrean and the, and the Russian Jews and the other Messianic congregations and country, as well as those Arab-speaking folks up in the northern region who do not have enough scripture, children's materials, Bible school materials, all this, we're going to be doing this right now. If there was a time to touch Israel, it is today. So Operation Equip Israel is um, huge. It's massive. It's right up Empower's Alley, and it is going to affect all of these people groups in Israel. Yes. Uh, it sounds really incredible, actually. We are going to help to strengthen the work there to help them indigenize the body of Christ within Israel today because the transition is now, and that's why they need an injection of God's Word both for outreach as well as to make them deeper in God. This is going to take them to the next level, basically. Totally. Yeah. And everybody that we've asked there, all the various people groups, shall we say, within the country, say this is the greatest need at this present time. Mm -hmm. So that's what we are going to be doing. We've got everything underway. Um, for the folks that are listening to us in January, um, plans are being laid. We will lay this out in print form and send it out to whoever wants to be part of this. But this is going to be one of the biggest things I think that Empower has ever done. And how exciting to be a part of one of the uh, largest uh, deposits of Bibles in Israel. Equip Israel. Equip Very Israel. Exciting. In the year 2019. Amazing. It'll probably last a little bit longer than that, but this year we're working on it. Because the tension in the country, mm -hmm. the opportunities are here now, as well as the fact that the opportunity for war is there now. Right. Because things in the Middle East are warming up. So today is the day, not tomorrow. Today yeah. is the day. Well, that's definitely something I want to be a part of. Equip Israel. I Amen. love it. <laughs> okay. And that's, that's it for this time. Joy. Great. Uh, well, there you have it, guys. Uh, God's Church on the Move with Ron and Karis Pierce. Thank you for listening.